It's nice that we can all come out of our hibernation after such a cold week. It's beautiful out, and so I really want to thank you for being here. I really appreciate you making the effort to come out. If you're new with us, I really want to welcome you. You are welcome every week to be here with our church family and be a part of it. Um, But if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. I'll be at this door after the service. Um, If you come through and say hi, I would love to know your name and and just... um, tell you thanks for coming and get to know you a little bit. But I don't know if you know this, but today is an important anniversary. 60 years ago, rock and roll legend Buddy Holly died in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa, 60 years ago today. We've talked about it before in church. It's been called the day the music died, and I'm familiar with the music of Buddy Holly because my dad used to make us listen to the oldies music every time we got in the car. And since every song back then was either about cars or surfing, I grew up thinking that the 60s were just the best time to be alive in America. All you had to worry about was finding a pretty girl to go to the dance with you. But now I know better. The 60s may be remembered with fondness and nostalgia, and there were good times, but they certainly were not a utopia, were they? The decade was kind of sullied by race riots and political assassination and the Cuban Missile Crisis and, of course, Vietnam. But today I realize how fortunate I was to be a kid in the 80s and a teenager in the 90s. The nation was at peace, relatively speaking. The economy was good. You could show up at the airport 20 minutes before your flight and walk right on the plane. And the only thing we were worried about was whether or not OJ would go to jail. (laughs) Our older folks remember exactly where they were. that The uh, the moment they heard the news that um, JFK was assassinated... Um, the younger folks, uh, your most formative memory is probably 9-11, but my most vivid memory as a young person is the OJ verdict, and it must have been a slow news decade. And I don't have many memories of war from my childhood. I've never lived through a presidential assassination, but I remember the images of that white Ford Bronco rolling down the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. And ever since then, we have been obsessed as a culture with the spectacle of manhunts. We've romanticized the flight of the fugitive. And in the deepest, darkest crevices of our hearts, we might admit that we almost root for the fugitive to get away. There's something exciting about being on the lam and trying to outsmart the detectives. And so for those of you who like a good manhunt, this morning's opening story is for you. The aftermath of the Lincoln assassination triggered perhaps the greatest manhunt in the history of U.S. law enforcement, and it captured the imagination of the public back then. John Wilkes Booth was kind of the O.J. Simpson of the 1860s. He was rich. He was a well-known celebrity of the day. He belonged to a very accomplished family of actors. So it's amazing that he was able to elude law enforcement for 12 days after the assassination. If he hadn't spent an extra night in Richard Garrett's tobacco barn in northern Virginia, he may have escaped to the Deep South and disappeared forever. But this brief pause gave law enforcement the extra day it needed to catch up, and Booth died from acute lead poisoning on Garrett's front porch. But that's for another day. John Wilkes Booth may have been the lone gunman, but there was a vast conspiracy behind the assassination plot. And the Secretary of War at the time, Edwin Stanton, would stop at nothing to catch every single one of whom he considered the conspirators. He put lucrative bounties on their heads, and a thousand Union soldiers joined in the manhunt. 
Most of the suspects were arrested within a few days, but one proved to be quite slippery. John Surratt was born into a deeply religious Catholic family on April 13, 1844 in Washington, D.C. When his father suddenly died in 1862, the young man was appointed postmaster of Surrattsville, Maryland. This was during the Civil War, of course, and John was deeply committed to the cause of the South. So he served as a Confederate spy and used his position in the Postal Service to smuggle out messages concerning Union troop movements. When things started going poorly for the South in 1864, Dr. Samuel Mudd, a Confederate sympathizer, introduced Surratt to John Wilkes Booth. (coughs) Surratt and Booth hatched a plan, first of all, to kidnap President Lincoln and ferry him to Richmond, Virginia, and ransom him in exchange for thousands of captured Confederate troops. If successful, this desperate scheme could have possibly changed the course of the war, or at least delayed the inevitable for a few more years. So on the night of March 17, 1865, Surratt and Booth waited alongside of the road, leading out of Washington to ambush Lincoln's carriage. But the carriage never came. President Lincoln had changed his mind and decided to stay in Washington that night. Shortly thereafter, General Lee surrendered on April 9th. But that didn't necessarily mean the war was over. Many Southerners weren't done fighting yet. Perhaps Surratt and Booth could still salvage something. So the conspirators continued to meet in the boarding house belonging to John's mother, Mary. Surratt decided to go to Elmira, New York to gather intelligence on a Union prison camp. Perhaps they could find a way to spring the Confederate soldiers being held there. But while Surratt was in New York, Booth had other plans. He plotted the coordinated assassinations of President Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, General Grant, and Secretary of State William Seward. Perhaps the high-profile killings of four top Union leaders would throw the nation into chaos and give the South the opportunity to reassemble. Booth, however, was the only successful assassin on the night of April 14th when he shot the president in Ford's theater. Meanwhile, Surratt read about the assassination in a New York newspaper during breakfast the next morning. He had been named a co-conspirator in the assassination, and the government had issued a $25,000 reward for his capture. Now, that was a whole lot of money back then, and whoever collected it would be set for life. And so Surratt knew that the worst thing he could do was to stay put. So he hit the road and headed for Canada. But the law was hot on his tail. For a week, he holed up in a hotel in Montreal while detectives scoured the city. Eventually, he escaped to the countryside where he found asylum in the home of a Catholic priest who was sympathetic to his plight. It was there that he learned that all his fellow conspirators, including his mother Mary, had been arrested and were facing a military tribunal rather than a civilian court. John Surratt was savage in the media for not coming to his mother's defense, who may or may not have been guilty of conspiring to assassinate the president. But John had no intentions of coming out of hiding, and despite five of the jurors asking President Johnson for clemency, Mary Surratt was hanged on July 7th. John Surratt knew that he couldn't stay in Canada forever, so the priest who was hosting him enlisted him in the Papal Zouaves. I guess the Pope had an army back then, and they were called the Zouaves. Surratt cut his hair and changed his appearance significantly enough to go out in public, and he secured passage on a boat bound for Liverpool, England. 
Upon their arrival, a surgeon who had been on board recognized Surratt and immediately notified American authorities, but Surratt had already moved on to London and then to Paris on his way to Rome. It had been a year since the assassination, and Surratt was settling into his new role, serving the Pope with the Zouaves. But he couldn't rest for long. A bounty hunter from America had also enlisted in the Zouaves after receiving a tip, after receiving a tip, and he was there to collect his reward money. So Surratt was on the move again. He made his way to the mountaintop town of Verily, where he was eventually apprehended by papal authorities. Before they left, Surratt asked if he could use the bathroom. And while the six guards gave him privacy, Surratt jumped off a terrace. The fall was high enough to kill a man, but Surratt's fall was cushioned by a pile of, well, you know what. And he was on his way again. He made his way to Naples, where he boarded a boat bound for Egypt. The ship made a stop in Malta, and there had been a cholera epidemic in uh, Malta. And so uh, upon arriving in Alexandria, the passengers were quarantined, and this pause in the action was enough for U.S. Consul General Charles Hale to catch up with Surratt, and he was finally arrested. John Surratt had been on the run for almost two years. Surratt was returned to America to face trial, but unlike the other suspected conspirators, he would be granted a civilian trial thanks to the public outrage that followed the execution of his mother. And if O.J.'s court proceeding was the trial of the 20th century, then Surratt's was the trial of the 19th century. Over 300 witnesses were called. Some swore that they had seen Surratt at Ford's Theater the night of the assassination, while others testified to seeing him in New York. The defense team admitted that Surratt was in the plot to to kidnap Lincoln. They insisted that he knew nothing about the assassination. The prosecution argued that since he was part of the conspiracy, he was responsible for the outcome. But unlike the OJ trial, there would be no dramatic verdict at the end. After two months of testimony, the Surratt trial ended in a hung jury, which consequently spared Surratt from being hanged. Surratt spent 10 months in prison while the prosecution prepared to try him again. Fortunately for him, the judge threw out the second indictment because it had been filed too late. Surratt was saved on a technicality. And you would think that John Surratt would have lived the rest of his life in infamy after going through an ordeal like this. The court of public opinion, after all, has no statute of limitations. But after a brief series of speaking engagements, Surratt retreated into relative anonymity. He found some honest work, got married, had seven children. And he lived happy and quietly before dying on April 21st, 1916, at the age of 72. So what do we learn from the manhuts of John Surratt and John Wilkes Booth and even O.J. Simpson? What lesson can you take away for the next time you're the target of an international manhunt? Well, the lesson is that you've got to keep moving. Because as soon as you stop either to get quarantined or the moment you decide to stay the extra night or the instant you pull over the Ford Bronco, you're finished. So it's your move now. What would you do as a fugitive? Would you stop and hide or would you keep running? As we'll see from our passage today, David chose to move. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 22 through 24. Or find it on your electronic device. 
If you don't have either of those things, you're welcome to take out the Bible from the shelf underneath the pew in front of you and turn to page 245, page 245 in your pew Bible, or 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 24. There's also some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This is installment number five of our current series of messages entitled Antihero, the Chronicles of David. We've been talking about how it's difficult these days to tell apart the good guys from the bad guys. We've seen the rise of the anti-hero in modern fiction. He's the hero, but not quite. Does heroic things, but lacks heroic qualities. But the anti-heroes we've been learning is by no means a modern concept. The Old Testament is rife with anti-heroes who were used very powerfully by God in spite of themselves. And chief among them was David. Try as we might to whitewash his image, the fact remains that his life was stained by scandal and soaked in blood. Yet somehow he overcame the odds and won God's heart. These are the chronicles of David. Now, this to get you caught up, if you happen to be new this morning. For the last few weeks, we've seen our anti-hero David rise through the ranks of the Israelite army. David was a fierce warrior and he had won the admiration of the common man. And as a result, everyone assumed that he was the heir apparent to the throne. But David's popularity growing made the current king nervous. And so King Saul began to see David as a rival to the throne. And as a result, he ordered his men to kill David. But David was tipped off by Saul's son, Jonathan, and he managed to escape into the wilderness. So today we'll see David join the ranks of John Surratt as a fugitive anti-hero running from the law. He'll become the target of a multi-year international manhunt. But on this particular occasion, it's okay to root for the fugitive. Let's look at 1 Samuel 22. We're going to start in verse 1 today. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So David retreats into a cave. The life of an anti-hero is always a lonely one. And though David is lonely, he's not alone. His family now realizes that they're in danger too. So they run to David in desperation, and David has to find a place for them to take refuge. But they're not the only ones who come to David looking for help. Every lowlife in Israel throws in his lot with David. These men have nothing else to do, nowhere else to go, and David is going to have to find a way to lead them. So in the next few chapters, we're going to see a new David emerge from what we've seen. We're not going to see the fear and the panic anymore. We're not going to see the selfishness so much. We won't see so much of the impulsiveness. Something is going to happen to David as he roams the Judean 
wilderness. This may be the darkest time he will ever face. But God's doing something. God has something in mind. And David seems to recognize this. We have a psalm from the Old Testament that many believe David wrote during his time in the cave. And it gives us a sneak peek into this fugitive's state of mind. It's Psalm chapter 142. It reads this, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This psalm is really dark. David's lost everything. He laments how desperate and alone that he feels in the cave. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you feel that way now. But at the very end, David starts to see an opportunity. David starts to recognize that God in the midst of this darkness, is doing something in his life. And David begins to understand this time of desperation and despair and anxiety will give way to a great bounty in his life. You see, behind every shadow, there's a light source. And the treasure on the other side of that trial is worth the pain. You see, David and his men are right where God wants them to be precisely because right now they have nothing. Happy, rich, comfortable people won't be able to do what God is going to ask of them. They would have to be stripped down to their core so they could be rebuilt in God's image. And so this is our main point from this morning's passage. It's in your bulletin if you'd like to write it down and fill in the blanks. The main point is the man with the least to lose stands to gain the most. The man with the least to lose stands to gain the most. We kind of have an outlaw theme this morning. And there was a Scottish outlaw from the 18th century named Rob Roy McGregor. Everyone in Scotland knows the name Rob Roy. He is there anti-hero. Born in 1671, Rob Roy grew up to be a criminal. There's no doubt about that. But the kind of robbery that Rob Roy practiced was considered honorable among the common people of the Highlands. Those from whom Rob Roy stole were usually part of the corrupt nobility who themselves robbed the peasants through exploitation and excessive taxes. And the fact that Rob Roy had a reputation for being very generous to the poor with his ill-gotten gains only increased his popularity. So Rob Roy became very wealthy. But nobles don't take too kindly to getting robbed. And the first Duke of Montrose named James Graham succeeded in entangling Rob Roy in so much debt that he was ruined. Graham gleefully evicted Rob Roy's wife and children from their home and then he burned that home to the ground just out of spite. 
Short of killing him, there was nothing left he could do to rob Roy. The Duke had taken everything from him. But as James Graham would come to find out, there's nothing more dangerous than the man with nothing to lose. And so with reckless abandon, Rob Roy waged a total war against James Graham. He plundered his lands in a feud that would last for years. Who knows how far he would have gone if the Duke of Argyle hadn't stepped in and brokered a peace treaty. Rob Roy would die in 1734 at the age of 63, but because of his heroic highwayman exploits, he would go down in history as a folk hero in Scotland. And in some ways, this is the story of David. David has lost everything. All he has is a sword. And everyone around him is desperate. They simply cannot go back to everyday life. They are in debt. They are criminals. They have disgraced their families, perhaps. But the very fact that they have nothing to lose will allow them to do things that others wouldn't dare. They will take risks that others would not take. God will direct them to do things that everyone else would be too afraid to do. And as a result, they will become something great. And this is a New Testament principle, by the way. The less you have to lose, the more you stand to gain. Apostle Paul said in his epistle to Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, But whatever I had to gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. These men, having lost everything, now stand to gain the most elusive treasure in the world. And that treasure is to be like Jesus. And that might not sound like much, but Jesus, you see, had more joy and more peace and more wisdom and more courage and more love than anyone in the world. God will use these men to build them into something that the world had never seen. They will become mighty men. First Chronicles 11.10 tells their story. Now, there are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. These guys would gain everything, but they had to lose everything first. Right now, they're just a ragtag band of ruffians just trying to survive a fugitive manhunt. And as we saw at the end of our passage, God tells them through the prophet Gad that they need to keep moving. If you stay still in a manhunt, then you're finished. So for the next several chapters, we're going to see David and his men constantly on the move as Saul continually tries to back them into a corner. Here's just a sample of their cat and mouse game. If you go to 1 Samuel 22, we'll look at verse 24. It says, Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshem. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, So he went to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. Saul heard about it, and he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David, 
and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So you see, David is constantly on the move, never relaxing. And just when it seems like Saul is closing in and all is lost, God intervenes and David escapes again. For years, David had been all about fighting. When he had a problem, he just killed it. But instead of taking life, now David is all about preserving life, the life of his men. David is more concerned about saving his men than he is about fighting Saul for the throne. He's starting to look more and more like his friend Jonathan, as we saw a couple weeks ago. But the ultimate proof of how David has changed is seen in the next chapter. Flip over to 1 Samuel 24. I'm going to skip around a bit here as we read it. It's going to start in verse 1. It says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild, goat, wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Skip to verse 8. After David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you Today, into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Now skip down to verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul and then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul asked, what kind of man seeks good for his enemy rather than harm? It's a man like Jesus. Now we are starting to see the Christ-like character that God has been developing in David during this dark time of the soul that we've seen today. While Saul is 
continually coming undone, Saul or David is finally getting it together. While Saul is pursuing vanity projects, David is becoming a real leader. And in this cave, David has every right to kill Saul as he was relieving himself, but he chose instead to trust God to deal with Saul in his time. But this is the time to start admiring David. Now is the time to start emulating David in our lives. He is moving further away from the label of anti-hero and starting to become a genuine hero. But what exactly happened to David? How did God change him? A lot of people go through times of trial and darkness and they simply fall apart. How did David succeed and become better for it? That's what we want to know. Well, I think the answer lies in an episode in David's life that often gets overlooked, but I think it's the defining moment of David's life. And as we'll see, the great defining moment of our lives are rarely seen and celebrated by others. They are rarely spectacular, but they are powerful. I want you to turn back to 1 Samuel 23. In the midst of this dark time, David's going through. 1 Samuel 23, we're going to look at verse 1 here. It says this, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Cala, which was a city, and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save the city of Cala. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Cala against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired to the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Cala, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. David hears that the Philistines are looting a town called Cala, and the people are helpless to stop them. And evidently, this injustice really bothers him. So he asked the Lord, presumably through a prophet, if he should save the city of Cala from the Philistines. And God tells him that he should do it. But look, his men are afraid to act. It's amazing that this is the group that would eventually become David's mighty men, fearless. But they don't look so mighty right now. Even hearing from God doesn't convince them to move. Evidently, David's scared too because he goes back to the Lord one more time, even though God was very clear the first time. And God graciously gives him confirmation a second time that he is to move against the Philistines. So these men with nothing left to lose make a daring raid on the Philistines and take back the people's belongings. David's men gain confidence. They collect some badly needed weapons and supplies, and they perform a heroic, selfless deed in the process. They start to become like Jesus. They could have all stayed in the cave and felt sorry for themselves. They could have hidden in fear. They could have been a band of homeless, wandering nomads for the rest of their lives with no reason to live except not to die. But through David's decision to move, God started to do a mighty work in these men. And it would lead to even more adventures that would eventually change the history of Israel forever. 
This was the pivotal moment in David's life. This is the turning point. Forget about the anointing. Forget about killing the giant. This is David's time that's most impressive. God showed him the opportunity amidst this terrible ordeal that he's going through, through this dark time. Instead of wallowing in self-loathing, David decided to move. What did he have to lose after all? And that's our application from today's passage. It's in your bulletin. The application is this. You'll get your chance, but you'll have to dance. You'll get your chance. God will give you the opportunity in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of the darkest time of your life. God will give you the opportunity, but when that opportunity comes, you got to dance. you got to be ready to move. You can't do nothing. There's a little story in the book of Acts in the New Testament that rarely gets talked about. After the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples have been filled with the Spirit to do the same kinds of things that Jesus could do. And they're becoming more like Jesus, as we've been talking about with David and his men here. And one day, Peter comes across a man named Aeneas who's been crippled for years. And I want to show you what happens in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 35. It says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, Here's why I love this story. Aeneas doesn't have much to lose, does he? He's trapped in a very dark place. Evidently, he had been in some kind of accident or some kind of illness that had taken away his ability to walk. Then Peter comes along and proclaims that Jesus has healed him. But he doesn't stop there. Peter tells him to rise and take up his bed and walk. And this is important. Whenever Jesus healed paralyzed people, he did the same thing. He told them to rise and take their bed and walk. Now, why did he do that? Well, the reason is because Jesus can heal you all day long, but unless you get up and walk, the healing doesn't really matter, does it? You're in the same place you were before. It won't change your life, and it won't do anything For anyone. You see, Jesus does the healing. Jesus, in the midst of your darkness, will give you the way of escape. He will give you the opportunity. He will give you the life-changing moment. But you must take up your mat and walk. You must dance. You must move when the opportunity comes. Jesus healed these people, but for it to make any difference in their lives and the lives of those around them, they had to move. God will give you the chance, but you have to dance. And some of you are in a really dark place right now. Maybe no one else knows it, but you're in a cave. You're depressed, you're scared, desperate. You feel all alone. It is the dark night of the soul And maybe, like Aeneas, you feel 
paralyzed. You don't want to move. You don't want to do anything. Like David and his men, you just want to stay in the stronghold. Like the paralyzed man, you're stuck in bed. And that's always the natural tendency in dark times, by the way. But God has not brought you to this time of darkness for nothing. God does not waste pain. He does not waste sadness or depression or desperation. He does not waste loneliness. There is always an opportunity. There will always be an opportunity from your darkness, in the midst of your darkness. And so we have to look for that opportunity. And then when we see it, though, we have to move. And this may be the fateful decision of your life. Forget all the victories of the past. Maybe the day of your salvation, of course, that's amazing, absolutely. And maybe the day of your baptism was great and, and, and just terrific to do those kinds of things, absolutely. But this, today, might be the turning point. This is the pivotal moment. And maybe no one else can see it. No one else may ever notice it. But amid the darkness, you see an opportunity. He's giving you a chance. But it won't do any good unless you move and do it and take advantage. You need to make that decision and you need to get up and walk to the light source that's casting that shadow. And I suppose you could spend your whole life reveling in your status of maybe anti-hero. You can decide to stay there. You can be angry and broken and brooding as you walk through the trials of life. But God has more for you than that. He wants to build you into a genuine hero. That's the man who rescued the inhabitants of Cala. That's the man who blessed Saul rather than destroy him. If David had just killed Saul, then he would have just become Saul. But God had something better in mind for him, and he has something better in mind for you. Look, I know it's hard. It's easy to move when the sun is shining and you feel good. But it's the dark times that provide these pivotal moments. I don't know what your opportunity will be in the midst of your darkness. I just know that it will come. And you have to look for it. And when it does come, it's your move. Okay, so as we've seen, every anti-hero has an origin story has an arch enemy, a sidekick, a time of crisis. And today we've seen he has a moment of truth. But I encourage you this week to read 1 Samuel 25 and to come back with a friend next Sunday. And we'll be reminded that you can't have an anti-hero without a love interest. And we're going to see that with David next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these good people who've come out today and Lord, they're coming and they they want to be inspired by your message and your word. I pray your spirit would just come upon these people and bless them powerfully. Lord, I know that um, there are folks here today who've been in a very dark place and maybe no one even knows about it. Maybe it's the cave is deep in their soul. But God, I know 
that through this time, it's just a matter of time until you will give them an opportunity. You will give them a chance, a way of escape that you've been setting up through this dark time. But Lord, for us to be healed, we need to stand up and walk. So I pray when that time comes, Lord, all of us would be willing to seize that opportunity. We pray these things in Christ's name.